We're talking about this question, how is it that Jesus can possibly say, blessed are those who mourn? And in our everyday lives, there are lots of battles as well on many, many different fronts. Well, the second beatitude of the 10 beatitudes of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, yeah, there are 10, not eight. I like to say that. But the second one is blessed are those who mourn, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. That seems to be a bit of a paradox, at least on first glance. But Jesus, again, he's drawing from a lot of biblical tradition here. He's not pulling this stuff out of thin air. A lot of this stuff is based on salvation history, things that God has revealed before, because God always acts the same way throughout history. And in fact, if Jesus was really, really coming out of left field, not too many people would have thought that he would have fit the profile of the Messiah. One of the great books in the Old Testament where you see something similar is in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and he is absolutely key. Isaiah is key to understanding this, the fact that gladness and joy can coexist with mourning somehow. And really this can only happen supernaturally. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, it says, Comfort all who mourn. And then later on, in the very next verse in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 3 it says to provide for those who mourn in Zion to give them a garland instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit they will be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord to display his glory and then if you, if you flip forward a little bit Isaiah chapter 66 verse 10 It says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her. Again, that seems like a paradox. How can you rejoice in joy with those who mourn? Well, this is what the second beatitude is all about. Blessed are those who mourn. And, And actually, this combination, it shows up a whole bunch of different times in the Old Testament. Look at Genesis chapter 37, verse 35, Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, Jeremiah 16, 7, Jeremiah 31, 13. I'm going to get to that in just a second. First Chronicles chapter 7, verse 22, Job 29, 25. And the list goes on, but, but I want to really focus in on Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 13. This is really relevant. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. The young will dance in the discos. The older folks will dance in the parks. They dance. They will rejoice in the dance. And somehow they are comforted, but not the kind of comfort they can get from God. That's on another level. This idea of getting gladness in return for sorrow. And by the way, this whole section in the book of Jeremiah is all about, in chapter 31, the redemption of Israel, the renewal of Israel, the restoration of Israel. And, of course, people were hoping and praying for the Messiah to come and bring about that renewal. And one of the names for the Messiah, by the way, that the rabbis used to have for the Messiah is Menahem. Now, I don't know if you know anybody named Menahem, but it's a, it's a very common uh, Jewish male name, and it actually means comforter, comforter. And it comes from the Hebrew word naham, which is, uh, you can find that actually in Jeremiah thirty one thirteen, 
Isaiah 61, verse 2. The rabbis used to say, what is the name of the Messiah? His name is Comforter. Comforter. And of course, we know the Holy Spirit is often uh, called the Comforter as well. The Church of the Holy Comforter. And no, uh, that does not mean you should pull the blankets up over your head on Sunday morning and those holy blankets. No, it's not the holy comforter God wants for you. You got to get to Mass, everybody. You got to get up and get to Mass. But the comforter is the Messiah, really. And so this is, a, this is what Isaiah was prophesying about and Jeremiah was prophesying about. So in the last days, the righteous would be comforted by the Messiah. And that's, that's the job description, really, of Messiah Jesus. It's in his task to comfort his people, and, and somehow be able to give them blessing even when they mourn. I read another interesting uh, piece along those lines. It was written by uh, Dr. Chris Castaldo, and he talked about how when he was, really around the time his, his son was born, they discovered he had a very serious medical problem. In fact, he had severe hemophilia, and you know that uh, disease causes a lot of bleeding, and, and the doctor uh, looked at him and said, he, he, this is what he has. And he's like, are you sure? And as a dad, you know, he was just feeling helpless. And the doctor said, yeah, I'm absolutely sure. And so Chris Castaldo said that a lot of life happens before you're really ready for it. And when you get that piece of bad news, when you get that diagnosis that you, you weren't expecting or that you were fearing or that other piece of bad news, whether it's a loss of a job or, or a breakup or war is breaking out and, and your heart just drops into the pit of your stomach, your, your mind is searching for meaning, it's very, very difficult to find any kind of rational explanation in those moments. And, and he said that for him, he was just listening to the beeping sounds, which was kind of the, the ambiance, you hear all these noises in the neonatal unit of the hospital, and he couldn't do anything. He just felt completely powerless. But he said that Really, despair is not the end of the story. Whenever we're in mourning, that is the occasion when God can kind of create new spiritual senses in us. It's a little bit like you know, Peter Parker discovering a spidey sense you know, after he's bitten by the radioactive spider. These situations can help you to experience God in a way that you never did before a new dimension of the presence of God in your life. And it's when you're mourning, and it's when you're under pressure, and it's when you're under stress, and it's when you're sad. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He talked about the famous work of the psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. You've probably heard of her, and if you don't remember her name, you probably remember what she called the five stages of grief, Right. What's the first one? Denial. You know, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. Now, this is not happening. No, nope, this isn't real. There's got to be some other explanation. You deny, deny, deny. So the first stage is denial. The second stage of grief is anger. You're mad. You're mad at the situation. You're mad at whoever might have caused it. You're, you're even mad at God, shaking your fist at the heavens. It's okay. God can take it. And then the third stage is bargaining. Maybe there's some way out of this. Maybe that. Maybe this isn't really happening all kinds of inner self-talk that you try to do. And the fourth stage is depression, or very often you're really low when you, when you realize the, the way things actually are. Things aren't going back to the way they were before. And then finally, that fifth stage is acceptance. So grief uh, is in five stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. 
And one of the things that Chris Costaldo said was that, you know, she is missing a couple things in her list. Blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. She was missing blessing, and she was missing comfort. That list needs to be expanded to seven, you know, at least, right? And uh, St. Jose Maria said, there's, there's another stage, really, where you're faced with the will of God, especially if it's something that causes you to suffer. It's not just accepting it. It's not just making peace with it. It's actually loving the will of God. How can you possibly do that? Well, you can't do that, naturally speaking, but you can do it supernaturally. And this is what Jesus has for us. And so it's a gift from God. So this idea of being blessed uh, in mourning so that you can be comforted, that's not something you can kind of cook up on your own. It's not something you can grab. It's not something you can achieve. It's not something you can kind of work your way up to if you just concentrate hard enough. It's not an attitude that you can adopt. And I remember one book about the Beatitudes, which had a super corny title. It was called The Be Happy Attitudes. You know, if you just adopt the right attitude, then you'll have it. Fake it till you make it. Well, it's not altogether true. It's not just a way that you feel. It's it's not just your, your emotions. This is a gift from God. God has to give it to you, and you need to receive it. You need to receive it, even when you're mourning. And this guy... Chris Costaldo said he was teaching a course on Matthew's gospel and the Beatitudes when his wife was pregnant, before his son was born, before he, he found out he, he was a severe hemophiliac, and he would always be in some sort of danger throughout his life. And he, he was preaching about this and teaching about this. And then he, he looked at his wife sitting in the front row, and she was very pregnant. He said, I, I don't know, if I ever get challenged on this, if, if something happens maybe in my child's life, who's not even born yet, am I going to be able to actually live out this peace, this this blessedness, even when the chips are down? And it's, he said he was talking to his students about something that he called the Upsilon vector. Now, what, what the heck is that? What, well, Upsilon, or Upsilon, depending on how you pronounce it, it, it's a Greek letter, the Greek alphabet. It kind of looks like the English letter U, a capital U. So just think, you know, it starts off at the top and then drops down into this big valley when you're writing that letter, and then it goes all the way back up again. It's like the letter U, but it's actually Upsilon. So uh, it's part of the Greek alphabet. When you read the, the New Testament in Greek, you learn this really, really quickly. So what's the Upsilon vector? Well, if you think about it, this is the experience of Jesus, because Jesus obviously came from heaven, became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and in St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, he talks really about how Jesus descended into greatness. He talked about how, though, he was in very nature God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant. This is the famous, it's called the Song of Christ or the Carmen Christi. And Jesus emptied himself and became obedient even unto death shameful, ignominious death on the cross, shameful to all the others. What he was really doing was redeeming us on that cross, but (laughs) died, was buried. But then, of course, he rises again on the third day and ascends into heaven. So that's kind of like the shape of the upsilon, or or like what we'd say looks like an English letter, capital U. You're up, and then you're down again in the valley of the shadow of death, and then you raise up again. And this pattern of of Christ's life, death and resurrection, that's the pattern of our lives as well. 
And sometimes there are many periods like that in our life. It's not just the trajectory of our life as a whole. There are many times when we are down in that valley of the shadow of death, as it says in Psalm 23. And then God raises us up again. So it's this path of defeat, death, and then victory and resurrection. So this is what happens. And this is kind of written into the universe, isn't it? Think about nature. Think about how the seasons change unless you're living down in the Everglades of Florida or somewhere where it's really hot all the time. And hey, I I feel for you guys. But in a lot of the country, obviously, there there is the, the four seasons, the changing of the seasons. And when you see the leaves fall, you know, it, and then the snow comes down, everything is kind of buried underneath the, the blanket of snow. But then eventually there is new life in the spring. Fruit is produced. And it's also found in, in Scripture as well. And so many cases throughout the history of the people of God, they're down and out, but then God rescues them when they're disobedient, when they fall, and God lifts them up. Uh, this guy, Chris, Dr. Chris Castaldo, says that after his son was born, he got this, this diagnosis which caused he and his wife to mourn that, that he had severe hemophilia. He was always going to be in danger at some level. He said, now, I've got to apply this in my life. I've got to apply this upsilon vector. I've got to apply this truth of Jesus to my life that we can be blessed even amidst this mourning. But the peace, the confidence, the strength that didn't come overnight. In fact, there were a lot of tears, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of mourning. But that's okay, too, because this, again, shows us that this isn't from you. You can't, again, work this up on yourself. God has to give this to you. And Jesus went through it, too. Before he went to the cross, what did he say? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It wasn't easy for Christ, either. That was Matthew 26 verse 38. And so, if we don't have the cross in our lives, we really can't experience the resurrection either. And this is, this is the great fallacy of the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel that's so prominent in a lot of Protestant circles. Certainly not all. Many Protestants condemn this as well, this idea that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Televangelists in the 1980s used to proffer this false gospel. They still do today in many cases. So if there's some problem in your life, if there's some suffering in your life, if you're undergoing some sort of evil, it's because there's some sin in your life that's blocking the path of blessing. Well, that's diabolical. That teaching is from the pits of hell. The reality is we will have the cross in our life. In fact, one writer said, Whoever is not a Crucianus is not a Christianus. Whoever does not have the cross is not a Christian because he is not like his master, the Christ. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, who, who wasn't a Catholic but had a lot of Catholic sensibilities, he once said that everyone receives the cross in their lives, but Christians are the only ones who know what to do with it. We have to be willing to pick up our cross. We have to know how to do that. And... Sometimes we, we drop the cross. Sometimes we, we fall under its weight, just as Jesus did on the way of the cross. And we learn how to rely on the strength of God. And, and that's when Jesus becomes Simon of Cyrene to us. As Simon of Cyrene helped carry Jesus' cross, Jesus comes and helps us to carry our own. And so we cry out to the Lord, and he does help us. He does help us. And so Dr. Chris Costaldo, with, with his son as he was growing up, he had this one experience where 
is he had this condition of hemophilia. He was trying to teach his son how to ride a bike. And I, I remember this very well in my own childhood. It was one of the most, it was one of the simplest joys in life. And there's a great picture uh, that's somewhere in a, in a drawer in my, in my parents' home. And, and I'm riding my bike on my own for the first time. And there's this just look of pure joy on my face. I'm actually doing it. And, and how my dad trained me, it was actually pretty smart. What he did was, and I'm sure many of your dads did this as well, he took training wheels, put them on my bike, and bit by bit, as I was riding on the street every night, he'd come home after work and watch me ride my bike. And bit by bit, every day, he would raise those training wheels up off the ground, just infinitesimally, just millimeters. You know, I had no idea. And over time, he'd just keep raising them up and raising them up and raising them up. And one day, I was riding my bike down the street, and he said, Kale, do you know that you're actually riding without the training wheels? And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're still connected. And he's like, look. They're not even touching the ground, not even close. That's when I realized, wow, I'm doing it. I'm actually doing it on my own. And that's when they took this picture, and, and it's, it's really precious to me. And one of the most joyful moments is understanding, yeah, you can do it. It's, it's kind of like that in the spiritual life when we're carrying our cross. And bit by bit, you know, God will, as a good father, he'll help us. And we're able to, to lift up those training wheels a little bit. And this is what Chris Castaldo said when he was trying to teach his son how to, how to ride a bike. My dad did this too. He would just kind of kind of walk along really quickly behind his son as he was riding. And in, in this case, it was pretty dangerous because if he did fall, that can be a bad deal. When your blood doesn't clot, it can be a dangerous situation. So he would run behind his son's bike, his arms outstretched, ready to catch him, ready to throw his own body onto the pavement to, to be a cushion to break his fall. And inevitably, one, one time he did fall, and he couldn't catch him in time. And, and thankfully, the damage was pretty minimal. And, and he picked up his son, his son was holding his hand, and he said, man, this is a time when I just had a great spiritual revelation. What are God's thoughts towards us throughout our lives when we're, when we're dealing with things? And he, he lifts us up as well. And he wants to say to us, you know, keep going, keep pedaling, get back on the bike. Despite your fears, I know the bumps in the road. I know eventually you're going to wipe out. You're going to be knocked down by, by sadness or sin, mistakes. But don't give up because my grace is with you to the end. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. <laughs> 